When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-50 Augusta Certain now that Aurelian would not tolerate her rule in the east, in spring 272, Zenobia claimed, for herself and for Vabalathus, the full imperial titles that she had always assiduously avoided. Coins were issued from the Antioch Mint showing only Vabalathus. Wearing the radiate crown of the Roman emperors, and with the legend Imperator Caesar Vabalathus Augustus. She represented herself on coins as a Roman empress, Septimia Zenobia Augusta, or in Greek, Septimia Zenobia Sebaste. This is how historian Pat Southern describes the critical moment. And it's easy to imagine the mix of elation and existential dread. No more lies, no more caution, no more bowing to Roman authority. Just total victory or total defeat. On one big roll of the dice. But then it never hurts to try to work the odds. According to historian Richard Stoneman, it's also likely around this time that Zenobia built a new temple for a very old god. The Mesopotamian sun god Shamash was given a new home inside Palmyra, along with an accompanying statue and dedication. The inscription thanks the emperor Vabalathus for his honor and generosity and refers to him and Zenobia as the Augusti. So, yeah, it was pretty much game on. But an unintended consequence of Aurelian's invasion was the ratcheting up of the stakes. Up through the spring of 272, it's entirely possible that Zenobia's ambitions were limited to Egypt and Anatolia. But the moment Aurelian committed his forces, a new possibility emerged. If Zenobia killed the sitting Roman emperor, 
The next logical step would be trying to install her son Vabalathus on the throne. And given the state of the empire, it's hard to picture a countervailing force that might be able to stop her. It's not as if the Emperor Aurelian had any real partisans back home. Keep in mind, this wasn't the legendary Emperor Aurelian, restorer of the whole Roman world, basking in the saintly glow of all his later accomplishments. No, this was the newly minted, hot-tempered, military usurper Aurelian who just killed a few senators, abandoned a province, and hadn't done much, apart from fighting the Goths, to earn the love of the people. Zenobia, by contrast, was the wife of Odenathus, a respected, legitimate Roman official, who'd spent his life defending the empire against the major threat of the Sassanids. In fact, the recent Roman emperor Claudius Gothicus had even taken the title Parthicus to mark his victory, i.e. Vabalathus's victory, over the Persians. Given those facts, it's hard to predict who may have gotten more upvotes. If you're really trying to grasp the scenario, the closest parallel would be Julia Mesa coming west with Elagabalus after killing the emperor Macrinus. And even if the whole Elagabalus experience had turned the capital permanently off from embracing young Syrian nobles as Roman emperors, there's still a chance that Queen Zenobia had managed to pull it off. Which meant that Aurelian, like Zenobia, was basically risking everything and his loss might see the Western Empire effectively annexed to Palmyra. Keenly aware of the heightened stakes, Zenobia continued to tailor her image to appeal to a Roman audience. As already mentioned at the top of the show, she billed herself as Augusta, a familiar title frequently associated with the mothers of Roman emperors. She also depicted herself on coins as a typical Roman noblewoman. In fact, Zenobia portrayed herself with the exact same hairstyle as Gallienus' wife, Salonina. I'll post the two coins up online. The resemblance is super obvious. There's very little expectation that she actually wore her hair that way. But in the battle for Roman hearts and minds, it was a well-deployed first strike. But, of course, there's the war for hearts and minds, and then there's the actual war. And, somewhat ironically, while her ambitions and titles were reaching new heights, her territories were already shrinking. You can certainly call it a tactical retreat, but the spring of 272 AD likely saw Palmyrene forces abandon both Anatolia and Egypt. If a critical battle had to be fought, and there was every indication it did, it couldn't be fought by occupying forces spread out across two different provinces. The best choice, the logical choice, was to gather the army together in Syria. 
and lure the Emperor Aurelian to fight them where their strength and resources were greatest. All of which meant the arriving Aurelian met exactly zero resistance. As historian Pat Southern reports, it was probably in April 272 when Aurelian ferried his troops from Byzantium to Asia Minor. His army consisted principally of the Praetorian Guard and legionaries from the Danube provinces of Raetia, Noricum, Pannonia, and Moesia, augmented by mounted units from Dalmatia, Moorish cavalry, and possibly some of the mobile cavalry units raised by Gallienus about a decade earlier. It was definitely a substantial force, though not necessarily any stronger than the one Palmyra defeated under Heraclianus. Aurelian's first stop was Chalcedon, just opposite from Byzantium. And aside from its fairly strategic location, the city has an interesting origin. The first Greek colonists to arrive in the area could have settled pretty much anywhere. But instead of the infinitely better spot that later became Byzantium, they decided to settle at Chalcedon instead. The Persian general Megabysus later remarked that its founders must have been blind which gave Chalcedon its later nickname of City of the Blind. Still, the city done well for itself, and after narrowly avoiding Palmyrene conquest, its population was likely relieved to welcome the new Roman emperor. Aurelian's second stop was Ancyra, modern Ankara, the capital of Roman Galatia. Ancyra had briefly been held by Palmyra and may have garrisoned Palmyrene troops. But after their withdrawal, the city was happy to return to the Roman fold. For cities on the record as defying Zenobia, that decision was pretty easy to make. But moving on east through the Taurus Mountains, things got a little bit trickier. Odenothus's rule may have extended as far as the province of Cilicia, setting the effective Palmyrene border at the famous Cilician Gates. And Cappadocian cities near that border had a tougher decision to make. If they backed Aurelian and he was defeated, Palmyra'd be quick to retaliate. In fact, even now, there was no guarantee that the emperor would be able to see things through. A single dispatch about Germans or Goths overrunning defenses and making for Rome was all it would take for Aurelian to halt the campaign. And it's not like that was a low-percentage scenario. All of which goes a ways toward explaining why Tiana stuck with Zenobia. The city was only a few dozen miles from the border with Palmyrene Cilicia, and was the very first city in all of Anatolia to bar its gates to the Romans. Now, I've mentioned before that the Emperor Aurelian had serious anger management issues. And, according to the Historia Augusta, 
When he came to Tiana and found its gates closed against him, he became enraged and exclaimed, it is said, In this town I will not leave even a dog alive. The historian notes that the general thrust was warmly embraced by the soldiers, because sacking a city meant plunder with a capital P. And there's little doubt that it would have gone down, except for Aurelian's vision. Yep, that's right. Aurelian had a vision. No, it wasn't the sign of the cross over the sun. That's still a few emperors on down the road. But instead, it was a vision of a famous historical figure. The Historia Augusta reports that Apollonius of Tiana, a sage of the greatest renown and authority, a philosopher of former days, the true friend of the gods, and himself even to be regarded as a supernatural being, as Aurelian was withdrawing to his tent, suddenly appeared to him and spoke to him as follows. Aurelian, if you wish to conquer, there is no reason why you should plan the death of my fellow citizens. Aurelian, if you wish to rule, abstain from the blood of the innocent. Aurelian, act with mercy if you wish to live long. It reports that the emperor was stricken with terror and returned to his better self. To give the vision its proper weight, the Historia Augusta also adds, For who among men has ever been more venerated, more revered, more renowned, or more holy than that very man? He brought the dead back to life. He said and did many things beyond the power of man. So, who's this super-famous guy you've probably never heard of? Well, Warwick Ball takes a good first cut. Apollonius was born in Tiana, sometime in the early 1st century AD. He espoused an extreme form of mysticism and asceticism, whose beliefs appear to combine elements of Pythagoreanism and even Brahmanism. Renouncing the drinking of alcohol, the eating of meat, the wearing of wool and hot baths, he maintained a severe abstinence from all luxuries throughout his life. He believed in reincarnation and claimed to speak all languages, including those of birds and animals. Returning from the East, where he supposedly met with Magi, Brahmins, and even the Parthian king Vardanis I, Apollonius attracted a wide following, and his cult was seen as a rival to that of Christ. And though he parallels Jesus in many respects, miraculous birth, healing the sick, casting out demons, etc., he apparently fared a bit better with the Roman authorities. Hauled before Domitian, charged with conspiracy, Apollonius supposedly conducted a very blunt, and surprisingly effective defense. Julia Domna was a very big fan. Not only did she make a pilgrimage to Tiana, where Caracalla built Apollonius a hero's tomb, 
but she urged a philosopher named Philostratus to write the sage's biography. His life of Apollonius is still the source for most of our knowledge of his life and teachings, and was even dedicated posthumously to Julia Domna. So, anyway, Scott, why the big digression? Well, actually, there's a few good reasons. One is the link to the Severin family, another's the parallels to early Christianity, and another's to lay a bit of groundwork for some of Aurelian's later actions. Because Aurelian's a highly religious man, who'll attribute his victories to divine intervention, and Tiana marks his first supernatural episode. Shortly after his apparent vision, Aurelian was approached by a local man, who offered to betray Tiana in exchange for his life. With his help, the task was accomplished, but after winning a quick and bloodless victory, Aurelian decided to have the man killed anyway. According to the Historia Augusta, the emperor explained in a subsequent letter that I have never been able to love a traitor, and I was pleased that the soldiers killed him. So, Tion had fallen, and the Roman troops had definite expectations. The Historia reports that they clamored for the destruction of the city, in accordance with the words in which Aurelian had declared that he would not leave a dog alive in Tiana. To which Aurelian responded, I did indeed declare that I would not leave a dog alive in the city. Well, then kill all the dogs. Now, there are many brands of cojones in the world, my friends. There are battle cojones for fighting barbarians, political cojones for confronting rivals, even the super cojones exhibited by the Roman governor Polinus Auspex, who, when Septimius Severus claimed to be the son of Marcus Aurelius, congratulated him face to face on finding a father. Seriously, I'm still trying to shake that one off. But these all pale to the cojones required to joke with amped-up Roman soldiers about denying them what they view as their rightful reward. Previous emperors had been overthrown for less. Actually, far, far, far less. So it gives some insight into Aurelian's command that, again, according to the Historia Augusta, the entire army, just as though it was gaining riches thereby, took up the prince's jest, by which both booty was denied them and the city preserved intact. That is crazy loyalty, or at least crazy fear. And of course sparing the captured city of Tiana was the ultimate propaganda move. Up until that moment, cities and officials who'd backed Zenobia were likely committed to seeing things through, for fear of imperial punishment or even destruction. But once Aurelian had flipped the script and showed that Rome could be forgiving, well, let's just say it gave folks a lot more latitude. But 
Like we said before, there's the war for hearts and minds, and then there's the actual war. And in that respect, the Palmyrene army was basically second to none. After pulling her forces back to Syria, Zenobia had come to meet them in Antioch and strategize with her leading generals on how to defeat the invaders. It's unclear whether Vabalathus came with her, but since he's not mentioned in any of the sources, he likely remained in Palmyra. Zosimus puts the strength of Zenobia's army at 70,000 men, the same number used to conquer Egypt. But exactly how many were Roman legionaries is a bit harder to nail down. In addition to the legion in Syria Phoenice, there were two more based in Coel Syria, and at least one more in Syria Palestina, making four in the three Syrian provinces. There may have been two more across the Euphrates, at Rasena and possibly Nisibis, though it's hard to know whether these had been reconstituted. It's safe to assume the bulk of these legions had served Odenathus in his eastern campaigns, though whether they'd followed Zenobia to Egypt is maybe a more open question. Even more unclear is the fate of the legions the Palmyrenes had fought in Arabia and Egypt. It's certainly possible that one, or even both, were now in Zenobia's service. Many of the rest were Palmyrene soldiers, basically an extension of the Roman army, along with groups of desert tribesmen who'd allied with the Palmyrenes. The Historia Augusta also notes the presence of Indians, Bactrians, Iberians, Armenians, and Persians, or more likely Parthians, which actually brings up an interesting possibility. While the Indians and Bactrians are a bit far-fetched, it's reasonably likely the other groups could have entered Palmyrene Syria as refugees fleeing the Sassanids. They likely served in Palmyrene auxiliaries, fiercely loyal to Queen Zenobia in gratitude for her husband's victories over their mutual Persian foes. The Palmyrenes also had the advantage of choosing the site of the battle. If they really had met, and successfully countered, a previous invasion under Heracleonis, it seems at least possible they may have decided to use the exact same spot. According to Southern, Zabdus chose his ground on the plain, where he could use his heavy cavalry more effectively. He took up a position north of the city of Antioch, expecting Aurelian to approach from the northwest. But the Romans either anticipated his maneuvers or received intelligence of them. So Aurelian decided to circumvent the Palmyrenes, marching around the north of their position and down the eastern side of Lake Antioch, to come at them from the east which would cut off their retreat if they wished to withdraw toward Palmyra. Zabdus discovered the changed direction of Aurelian's march in time to move his cavalry to a new position, a few miles to the east of the river Orontes, and met the Romans there. 
As Zosimus records, they're finding Zenobia with a large army ready to engage, as he himself also was. Aurelian met and engaged her, as honor obliged him. In these days, it was still the norm to arrange for battle in the classic style, with infantry in the center and cavalry on the two wings. But on this occasion, Zosimus notes that Aurelian planted his infantry by themselves on the other side of the Orontes, and appeared to be putting most of his faith in the Roman and allied cavalry. For Zenobia, this was a welcome development, since, though Roman cavalry was nothing to shrug off, they didn't stand a ghost of a chance against the Palmyrene cataphracts. I've already spilled considerable ink describing these armored horsemen, a critical element of eastern armies since the days of the Bactrian kingdom. With the latest refinements made by the Sassanids, and quickly adopted by their Palmyrene rivals, cataphracts were basically the cutting edge of contemporary military tech. They were practically unstoppable and virtually unkillable, the ancient equivalent of modern tanks, and could only be effectively countered if you had a few of your own. And, well, the Romans didn't. According to Zosimus, Aurelian conceded the Palmyrene cataphracts were very much better horsemen than his soldiers. And, in an apparently sacrificial move, Aurelian only opposed them with his own light cavalry. The heat of the day was beginning to tell, an apparent advantage for Zenobia's troops, as most of the Romans were unused to fighting in Syria's scorching climate. Once both sides had arranged their forces, Zenobia took the initiative, sending her cataphracts thundering off to smash the Roman lines. She was quickly rewarded with a welcome sight, the Roman cavalry breaking and fleeing just before the two sides clashed. The Palmyrene cataphracts gave pursuit, and she watched the horsemen galloping off at full speed into the distance. Very little time had passed before Zenobia learned the truth. The bulk of her cataphracts had been slaughtered by the Romans. According to Zosimus, Aurelian had ordered the Roman light cavalry to continue fleeing until they had wearied both the men and their horses through excess of heat and the weight of their armor, so that they could pursue no longer. The emperor had wisely taken advantage of the cataphracts' only weakness. Too much exertion in the heat of the day and their armor turned into a furnace. In fact, Within a few short decades, the Latin term for such armored horsemen would be clibinarii, or oven men. Near the town of Ime, the Roman cavalry finally worn down their pursuers. Zosimus reports that as soon as the cavalry of the emperor saw their enemy tired and that their horses were scarcely able to stand under them or themselves to move, they drew up the reins of their horses and, wheeling round, charged them, 
and trod them underfoot as they fell from their horses, by which means the slaughter was promiscuous, some falling by the sword and others by their own and the enemy's horses. The effect of the loss on Palmyrene morale is hard to overestimate. Aurelian had managed to hit them where they were strongest. At the very least, the day was lost, though Zenobia's army was still intact, and she and Zabdis ordered their forces to withdraw to the city of Antioch. The Palmyrenes needed a secure position to rally their troops for another engagement. But Zenobia and Zabdis quickly decided that Antioch wasn't that place. The sprawling city was hard to defend, and besides, with the news of Aurelian's clemency, there were likely plenty of wavering officials whose loyalty couldn't be trusted. As already mentioned, the route to Palmyra was effectively blocked by imperial forces. And besides, Zenobia had little desire to concede western Syria to the Romans. But she knew of a place, a reliable place, where she could make an effective defense, and even possibly accomplish her goal of destroying the emperor's army. The tricky part was she couldn't let the Antiochenes know she was planning to abandon their city, since the minute she did, they'd put her in chains as a gift for the Emperor Aurelian. So instead, Zenobia and Zabdis had to pull off a pretty elaborate deception. As historian Pat Southern relates, like Cleopatra riding triumphantly into Alexandria after defeat at the Battle of Actium, Zenobia calmed the people by pretending that her armies had won a great victory. She even spread the news that Zabdus had captured the Roman emperor. They actually dressed up a guy to look like Aurelian and paraded him all through the streets. Southern also notes that the charade covered her escape so successfully that Aurelian did not know until the next day that the queen and her general were no longer in the city. The Palmyrenes marched south along the Orontes for days before reaching their goal. The city lay at the head of a gorge in the center of a fertile lowland plain, surrounded by fields of wheat and barley and olive trees and vineyards. It boasted a dam to improve irrigation and an ancient citadel that had once held a palace, and, of course, the magnificent temple of an ancient Syrian god. It was here the Palmyrenes made their camp and prepared for the coming of the Romans. As Southern notes, Zenobia's army had been mauled but not annihilated. She had held on to most of her wealth and influence, and she had the advantage of knowing the terrain and how to survive in it. She knew, as well as her generals, that the combination of desert conditions, hostile nomads, lack of food and water, disease and illness, might well prove to be her greatest allies against the Romans. If Zenobia had her way, 
Tiana betrayed and Antioch abandoned would see the last of Aurelian's gains. Like the famous sun-priest Samsi Garamus, who'd stared down his own impossible odds, Zenobia had chosen to make her stand at Emesa. Mm-hmm.